ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. David Gillespie is someone who likes to understand the things he encounters. He's a lawyer by training, but he has written best-selling books on the dangers of sugar, on the value of public education and on the needs of the teenage brain. Once upon a time, David was working as part of a small team when a new member joined. This guy seemed great. He was easy to get on with. Everyone liked him. But pretty quickly, that all changed. One-on-one, this new member could be aggressive. He'd play favourites and pit people against one another. And this once happy, harmonious team became nasty and dysfunctional. Many people quit, including David. And he was left asking himself what on earth had happened? What was going on with this guy? And how had the rest of them got him so wrong at the start? David's new book is called Toxic at Work, Surviving Your Psychopathic Workmates from the Dominant Bullies to the Charming Manipulators. Hi, David. G'day, Sarah. Take me back to that experience of yours. What were things like at work before he came along? Uh, It was a it was a very dynamic team. Uh, there were specialists uh, in most areas involved in this in this team and very little overlap between our works. And so we had to trust each other to get the job done. Uh, there was no real ability to be looking over each other's shoulders and that would just slow us all down. We were working fast. We trusted each other. We loved going to work. People would put in huge hours and not even realise they were doing it. Um, it was a, a classic... Um, over-the-top startup type team. Uh, and, yeah, it, 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 it was really fun to work there. And what were your first impressions of this guy when they arrived? He was great. Absolutely terrific. You know, he, he looked like he fitted in perfectly. He said all the right things. Uh, he believed all the right things. He seemed to have exactly the right attitude. And was there then a moment where you suddenly saw him differently or did it kind of happen by degrees? This far beyond it, I I can't remember an exact moment, but I can describe in general what it felt like, uh, which was that there were instances where suddenly the message he was giving didn't match his behaviour, where where he would do things that seemed to hurt the team or hurt individuals in the team or even hurt the interests of the business um, that we were in. Uh, and it was really hard to explain. You'd look at what he'd done and you'd say, why did you do that? Why did you attack that guy? He's done nothing wrong. Sure, maybe he stuffed something up, but he doesn't deserve to be attacked and he certainly doesn't deserve it in public. And then what started to happen was people started to not trust each other in the team. People started to wonder, if I tell that guy that I have reservations about this other fellow, is that going to go back to him? Is he part of that guy's team now? Am I going to be the next guy that gets attacked in a meeting? Uh, And that started to drain the trust out of the team. Sort of, you know, it was once famously said, I'm not sure by who, that the trust is like oxygen. Um, when it's there, you don't notice it. But when it's gone, it's a disaster. <laughs> You're gasping. Yeah. You're gasping for your life. What did you think you were dealing with at the time? I had no idea. It was really perplexing. Uh, you know, it, it, my overwhelming state of mind was confusion. 
you know, I, I knew I had to suddenly um, walk on eggshells in a workplace that previously I felt everyone had everyone's back. Um, I knew that I was at risk of being attacked for no apparent reason. Um, and I, like everyone else in that team, probably behaved in a protective fashion, which was keep my head down, try and stay out of this guy's way uh, and trust nobody. So as time went on and you started reflecting on this experience and the behaviours that you witnessed and sort of found yourself somehow complicit in, how was it that the category of psychopath seemed to fit your experience? It didn't at first. I really had no idea. Uh, so I started looking uh, around on the internet and, and, and trying to find anything that would explain this. Can imagine you're Googling that crazy person <laughs> That's at work. That's right. People, <laughs> Why do I hate my job suddenly? That kind of thing, you know, and, and eventually stumbled across various articles. It started to coalesce into there's a type of person that does this. The things that I was experiencing seemed to be being described by lots of different people in lots of different types of workplaces. And... Uh, they were calling them all kinds of things, you know, narcissists, bullies, micromanagers, uh, sociopaths. Very few of them called them psychopaths. Um, but that was the kind of theme of it. And But what I was noticing was that all of the behaviours they were describing were identical. Every, they could have been describing the person I was working with. What What are the key ones? So the, the, the thing about... Um, them initially being really charming and nice and, and great to be around, uh, that seemed to be a common fact, that the first time anyone met the, the person they were now worried about, they were the you know, best thing since sliced bread. Uh, the, the thing about the, the private meetings, the one-on-ones, where the person suddenly goes from really nice guy to really nasty, vicious person and then flips back again as soon as the private meeting's over. Um, the 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 perception in the workplace about there are people there who say oh you know I've got no problem with Bob he's he's fine I don't know what what on earth you're talking about and yet you're feeling hell on the inside so those sorts of traits plus the constant lying uh, so that's one that comes across throughout every story about psychopaths is they lie all the time psychopath is a term David that's you know associated with serial killers with sadistic offenders. That wasn't true of this guy that you no, were working with. No, not at all. Uh, in, in fact, just the opposite. Um, so uh, psychopath, we get that association probably from a movie that, that talked about a psychotic rather than a psychopath, which was Psycho. Uh, and, and before Psycho, which was in the early 1950s, psychopath was commonly used in the psychology profession to describe what I'm talking about. They switched from that to sociopath uh, after that movie was released because of the confusion. People hear the word psycho and they think psychopath. But what we're really describing is a pathology that doesn't have anything to do with chopping people up. It just happens that a fair percentage of people who do chop people up also have this pathology. <laughs> That's not a Venn diagram I want to spend too much time thinking about. So you've described what it was like to work with someone with these traits Flip it around for me. How does a, a someone who is a psychopath see other people? Who are we to them? Uh, we're not people is the short way of describing it. And, and this is the bit that is really, really hard for us to understand in the first place and then continue to apply because our default position is that people are people and that people should be treated the way we would expect to be treated. 
psychopaths cannot see the world that way. It's not that they're choosing not to see the world that way. It's that they cannot see the world that way. Everybody else in the world is an object. Just as a stapler on your desk or, or a computer, they're just objects. They're inanimate objects, tools to be used to produce better outcomes for the psychopath. And they see us that way all the time. And it is really hard for us to get that through our heads. What's motivating someone who sees the rest of the world like an object? The same thing that motivates all of us, which is self-interest. But our self-interest is tempered by consideration of others. They have no such consideration. What about the, the qualities like, you know, shame or remorse that guide our behaviour so often? How do they figure for someone like this? Well, a psychopath is incapable of feeling shame or remorse because to do so would be to admit that they'd done something wrong. Um, and the biology that underlies psychopathy does not permit them to learn from mistakes. And if you can never learn from a mistake, you can never have done something wrong. So if you can't do anything wrong, how on earth can you feel shame or remorse for it? You describe uh, some tests that were done using electric shocks. Yes. Tell me about those. So, that's, a, know, that's a slightly psychopathic laugh you have, Well, in, in <laughs> reflecting on in that. In most enlightened times, I, I always enjoy reading studies from the <laughs> 70s because uh, ethical controls were probably a little less tight. And, and so you can read some really interesting human studies that now would never be allowed to happen. But some studies were done in the 70s uh, on prisoners, and what they did was that they used a standardised test to divide up prisoners uh, based on whether they were likely to be psychopaths or whether they weren't, uh, and they matched them up by the type of crime they'd done, so they weren't having it affected by what sort of crime it was, and then they got a matched group also from the general population who were not prisoners. Uh, and and what they did was that they, they uh, put them in a room, they said to them, we're going to give you an electric shock. Uh, we're going to count down, uh, and after eight counts, we're going to give you a really, really nasty electric shock. It won't kill you, but it will hurt. Um, now, people probably at this point were wondering whether the 10 bucks was worth <laughs> it, um, but they did it. Uh, so they, they did it, and you're sitting, you can imagine yourself sitting in the chair, you know, eight, nine, et cetera. And, I and, feel anxious and, just hearing <laughs> you describe this. And you know that when you hit zero it's going to be a nasty electric shock. Uh, unsurprisingly, when normal people sit in that chair and have that happen, all the, th all the tests they've got, so they've got skin sensors on them and all that sort of thing, all the measures of anxiety go off the chart. You are hearing the countdown. You know it's going to hurt. You know it's going to happen in one second. People get really anxious. It's even worse when they do it the second time and the third time and the fourth time. Normal people really struggle with this. They did the same thing to psychopaths. They couldn't care less. There was no anxiety about so the countdown. what's that saying? Well, the, inter the, the researchers interpreted it as a lack of fear. A probably more accurate thing is that they were not um, capable of calculating that something bad was going to happen. They knew it would happen, just like everyone else. They're not idiots. But the part of their brain that registers that and produces anxiety as a response, which is necessary for our survival to make us stop doing things which will hurt, um, was not connected in the psychopaths. And what it tells us is that psychopaths cannot be punished, meaning all punishment revolves around a threat. 
you know, the idea is that I don't have to punish you if I can just threaten you and that will stop you doing it. If you're a psychopath, that doesn't work. You compared trust to oxygen earlier and trust is very closely related to empathy. One of my favourite um, ways of thinking about empathy is that cartoon where two young fish are asked by an older fish, how's the water? And one young fish turns to the other and says, what the hell is water? Because empathy like air is something that, or like water if you're a fish, is yeah. something that just surrounds us. It's something we're not even aware of. We take it for granted. How early did, did empathy turn up as a marker of human societies, do you think? Is it something that we've always had as humans? We've always had. We probably haven't called it that. Um, so if you think about humans as we are the apex predator on this planet, but we shouldn't be. We haven't got sharp teeth. We haven't got talons. We haven't got claws. We haven't got venom. We've got no armour. Uh, essentially, we're meat on feet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you'd think that is the apex predator? Um, because in a one-on-one with a crocodile or a great white, I, I, you might beat them, but I would struggle. And, and, but you might say, well, how on earth is that the apex predator? And the secret ingredient for us is that we are the only species on this planet that can work well with strangers. We're the only species that can work well with members of, a spe- of our species who we are not related to. And the only reason we can do that is because we have empathy. In other words, we trust other humans. Our default position is a stranger is trustworthy. That allows us to cooperate in large groups and defeat any other predator. What role do mirror neurons play in empathy? They're essential because a mirror neuron allows us to automatically communicate in sub-one-second time frame. So at light speed, we can communicate. We don't have to calculate anything. We can sense that someone we know is sensing danger by micro movements that they make, noises that they make, the way they breathe, the way they they move their head. They don't have to say anything. We get that communication in less than a second. It's been measured actually in in baseball studies. What do you mean? Uh, How? (laughs) So we have to know. uh, So, well, baseball has a lot of money for this kind of work, but what they do is that they want to know What's the difference between someone who hits a pitch reliably and someone who doesn't? Uh, And it turns out it's that sub one second. Now, baseball takes at full speed about 300 milliseconds to get from the pitcher to the bat. In that time frame, good hitters know which way the ball is going and can hit it. Bad hitters can't. There's been extensive work on this, and it turns out that those good hitters' micro responses are reading the pitcher. We do that all the time in everyday uh, social interaction and that's what our motor neurons do. Do we need to be in one another's physical presence for those mirror neurons to fire? It helps because there's a lot going on that you just can't sense. So obviously if you're on the phone, all you've got is the voice and that's probably a very, very small amount of the communication. If you can see the person, say on a video conference, you've got more, you've got facial movements but it's still not in 3D and you can't see the rest of their body. You can't hear the micro noises that the the microphones are filtering out. You can't see how the rest of their body moves. So ideally, we are evolved for in-person interaction and that's where we work best. And, I mean, baseball's one example, but conversations is another. That's why Richard and I always want to do our yeah. conversations face-to-face. It's such a different kind of interaction with a- absolutely, human. Absolutely, because we're reading so much more than what's coming out of the person's mouth. 
So lots of animals have these mirror neurons. I mean, they're what allow starlings to fly in formation or fish to move. Yep. You know, the schools of fish to move through the water. But our species takes the information from these mirror neurons one step further. What else is going on in our brains when it comes to empathy? So humans, we think relatively uniquely, um, not quite uniquely, but close, have evolved a set of neurons called von Economo neurons, which are very, very long neurons for the human brain, uh, which connect our amygdala to our prefrontal cortex, which is our uh, supervisory processing, our most recently evolved part of our brain. So it's connecting our primitive part of our brain to our evolved super processing part of our brain. And it's taking the feedback from those motor neurons and using it to calculate information about the way another human will react. So it is a super socialising neuron, if you like. We have a capability to assess the intent of other humans using that motor neuron facility. So it's not just good for picking baseball pitches. (laughs) It's good for picking, can I trust this person or not? And are we born with these neurons fully functioning? No, actually not at all. So human babies have no von Economo neurons. So... The end result of that is, by the way, if you don't have von Economo neurons, you're a psychopath. Um, what are you saying about babies, Yeah, well, David? anyone who's ever had anything to do with a baby knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> they, Charm, charming. Well, very charming until they get, don't get what they want and then they're crying and, and yelling and screaming. So everyone who's had anything to do with a baby knows they're dealing with a psychopath. And, <laughs> and the biochemistry backs that up. Uh, they don't have von Economo neurons. By the time a child is four years old, if they are a normal child, that is not a psychopath, they have a full set of adult von Economo neurons. So they have full empathy by the age of four. That's so interesting. So the structure must be present, but the development happens, what, through socialisation or just through age? If if we knew the answer to that, we'd we'd be Nobel laureates. (laughs) We don't know why one in 20 people don't develop them, uh, but we do know that they don't. And you said that we're the only or or one of the few animals. So there are other species who have these. There there? are other species that have them at nowhere near the density of humans. Uh, Other species have this kind of neuron, but they often co-opt it for something else. So, for example, dogs have a similar neuron, which they co-opt to significantly enhance their sense of smell. Um, birds have a similar neuron, which they use to to create a, a much, much better eyesight. Um, and and it's a differentiation neuron. So it helps us differentiate. It helps us get really, really fine differentiation in smell, uh, sight, uh, and in humans' case, emotions. How did a, a computer programmer called Lee Holloway help scientists understand the role of these von Economo neurons? Well, the theory is that if you don't have von Economo neurons, you're not capable of empathy and therefore not capable of trust. And therefore, a psychopath is a person who doesn't have von Economo neurons. Now, when you cut up psychopaths' brains after they're dead and count the von Economo neurons, yes, it's better to wait till after they're dead. Definitely. Uh, (laughs) Otherwise, you're in that category yourself. That's right. Um, And count them, you come to the conclusion, yes, that's what's missing. Uh, Now, to prove this, it would be really excellent if you could come up with a disease state that affected von Economo neurons that converted normal people into psychopaths. And that's what happened with Lee Holloway, who's probably one of the most famous examples of this. Um, he had something called Pick's disease, and he is is the, the founder of a massive internet company um, that 
that started out in much the way I described my workplace, uh, you know, a diverse team of individuals working really hard for an output. He was regarded as one of the best bosses going around, super supportive, a mentor to the younger players, mentor to the developers, uh, always cooperating with the team, could be absolutely trusted. Uh, and then suddenly he couldn't. Suddenly he turned into what his wife described as an asshole. Um, at home, at work, he just turned into a state that would match very, very closely the the description of psychop- psychopath. So how did they, how did anyone realise he wasn't just being a class A jerk? Uh, well, it took a while and that's probably the distressing part for his family is that at first they thought this guy's just, I don't know what's wrong with him, you know, maybe midlife crisis, whatever it is. And so what, he got divorced and... Got divorced. Left his job. Yep. Sacked uh, from his married, job. He's married a communications work, uh, a person in charge of communications at the at the office within a year of divorcing. Um, and it still uh, got worse and worse and worse. Less and less uh, supportive, angry at work, bullying uh, employees, etc. Eventually they convinced him to undergo a, a brain scan um, that picked up that it was likely that he was suffering from something called uh, frontotemporal dementia, or the behavioural variant of that, uh, which affects... It, it's the most common dementia in people under 50, uh, and uh, it, it uh, destroys the von Economo neurons. Uh, and what they found is that once you've lost 75% of your von Economo neurons, you're essentially a psychopath. Was he aware that he had changed in that sort of way? Like, what's it like to be that person? He was. So he would frequently, when people would point it out to him, he would apologise, but it wouldn't change his behaviour. So he was able to stand back and say, yes, this is not good behaviour, because he had a benchmark for what good behaviour was. He'd been a normal person his whole life. Uh, And in fact, there was was an even better example, uh, a fellow by the name of Howard Glick, who actually published a blog where he recorded these impressions. and, And he actually said, I just want to go back to being a normal, caring human. He recognised in himself that he knew he was doing the wrong thing and couldn't care less. What an awful, just just like a horror movie, that sort of state, to feel yourself losing your humanity almost. Yeah. Now, a psychopath never feels that because they've never had it in the first place. But that disease is really instructive because it allows normal people to give us insight into the way it feels to be a psychopath. So these qualities that are notably absent in the people you're calling psychopaths, most notably trust and empathy, researchers have worked out different sorts of tests, sorts of uh, philosophical or or practical tests to try to assess where people are and and when we should trust people and when we shouldn't. There's a famous one called The Prisoner's Dilemma. Can you give me a a sketch of that or or one that makes sense for for our conversation? So The Prisoner's Dilemma, Prisoner's Dilemma is difficult to describe <laughs> without seeing it written down on, on a piece of paper. I'll describe the original dilemma, which was that they would say, what you're going to do is you imagine two people who've been uh, arrested for a crime. Uh, they're put in separate interview rooms uh, and they're told that if they admit to the crime, uh, they'll get off scot-free, but they've got to implicate the other person uh, and they'll go to prison for three years. Uh, and if they uh, don't admit to the crime, then they, they will go to prison for two years and so will the other person. And both of them are told this. So you're working out whether to risk the other person dobbing you in or not. That's right. And it's a, it's a, I find that difficult to picture in my head. So, And I was listening to the radio uh, recently uh, in Brisbane here and, and a commercial radio station had a game where 
they pitted people against each other for a cash prize of $20,000. And in this game, what the person had to do was uh, remain kissing a pile of $20,000. And so the they ABC had... ABC would never do this. <laughs> no. <laughs> we don't have that kind of money anyway. That's the first problem. <laughs> Forget so, the so, so they'd stand there yeah. with the, against this wall and they picked 20 people and they're all doing it and they went for days and days, as you would imagine. Uh, and then eventually they were left with just two people still attached to the money. Uh, and they were not giving up, and the segment needed to end. So they decided to end it with a prisoner's dilemma. And what they said to the people was, on the count of three, you are going to have to decide either to remain attached or to pull back. Now, both of you have to do it on the count of three. You have to make a decision. If you stay attached and the other person pulls back, you win the $20,000 and they get nothing, and vice versa. If you both stay attached, then we'll split the money. If you both step back, then we'll give it to someone in the crowd. Could be the other way around. <laughs> They're saying that if you stay attached, if yep. you both stay attached, then it goes to someone else. Yep. If one of you stays attached and one stands back, the one who stays attached gets it. it. And if you both stand back, you get you half get nothing. each. That's right. No, no, half each, yes. <laughs> what did so, they do? What did yeah, they realise? what did they do? In the end, they both um, pulled back at the same time. So they both got half. They both they got half. They trusted each other to they pull back. They trusted each other that they would pull back and they would get half. Uh, and that's a big call because one of them could have said, you know what, I'm just going to stay attached um, and then I get all the money. They couldn't do it because they just spent a week talking to each other, getting to know each other, understanding their lives, understanding how much they needed this money and each of them needed the money badly but neither of them was prepared to, to, to do over the other person just to take away the money. Their reputation mattered to them. So they had a trust for one another yeah. and for how each other would behave. But as you said, we can trust even strangers yeah. in, in a scenario like that. Yeah, uh, we do, uh, automatically. And scientists have proven this with a very simple computer game called Tit for Tat, uh, where they model trust and ask us, uh, what is your strategy when you are put in a position like the prisoner's dilemma? This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, David, this game, this tit-for-tat model about trust, how does it work? Well, it's based on the prisoner's dilemma. And when, when we're talking about that radio show thing, the people had to trust each other to pull back. If the other one had broken the trust, they would have ended up with nothing. So the rational thing to do if you were entirely selfish and you looked at that and said, what is the rational thing to do? The rational thing to do is stay attached and hope that the other person's stupid enough to trust you. Um, that's how a psychopath would view the world and that's exactly what they would do every single time. Now, scientists wanted to see what happens if you iterate that, like have them play that game over and over and over again for money. Now, when they tried that with human secretaries in the RAND Corporation, uh, what happened was that they, because they have a reputation in their own workplace and the money wasn't large, it was a dollar a time, they would always share the money. 
they cared about the reputation, they would always trust the other person to care about their reputation and they would do it. So scientists wanted to see, well, is that the ideal strategy? To trust. To, to trust. Is that the ideal strategy? Does it work when you do it at scale? So they did computer models of this and there was a worldwide competition to say, what is the solution to the prisoner's dilemma on an iterated basis over and over and over again that gets a person the most money? Does the psychopath solution work? Does the, the, the other solution where you trust each other work, which, by the way, they called tit for tat, um, or does something else work? So in this competition, they ran it. They found that the strategy that worked was tit for tat. And why, the way tit for tat works is initially you trust the other person. If the other person betrays that trust, then you betray them the next time round. As soon as they come back to being trustworthy, you trust them again. So you're mirroring, you're mirroring. their behaviour. Exactly. You just copy their behaviour, but you start with trust. You default to trust, then copy. That worked. It won every time against hundreds of alternative programs that were all kinds of complexities about do it three times in a row, <laughs> then trust, and all that, all that kind of thing, or just do it the way a psychopath, which is do, which is never trust. Um, the one that always worked, regardless, was tit for tat. And the scientists concluded that that is actually a really good model for the way our world works, which is that we default to trust. I want to ask you about how some of these traits are exemplified in an American who started as a businessman and went on to become president. Tell me about a TV interview that Donald Trump did on the morning of 9-11. Yeah, so... uh, then Donald was just a real estate developer in New York, uh, and uh, a friend of his, a fellow who'd previously worked for him, had this radio gig uh, on the morning that 9-11 occurred, uh, and, and, and Donald had been scheduled to do this interview. So when the time came, he phoned in as arranged. Now, at that time, the first tower had already been hit, uh, and it was unfolding outside his office windows. Uh, he could see it uh, from his office in New York. Uh, so could the interviewer. Uh, and so everything was interrupted and he started talking about, they started talking about that. Uh, and, and the interviewer said, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on this tower? And Donald said, well, um, you know, I have the tower next door, the, you know, I can't remember the address. Uh, it used to be the second highest building in New York, but now, you know, now I guess it's the highest. Uh, and that, is astounding. It, it's it even is so astounding it that is, as he's watching, watching people the die, second tower, this catastrophe yeah. unfold, he's saying, "I've now got the tallest building." Tallest building in New York, uh, and it's instructive as to the way someone with this pathology thinks, which is while you and I are horrified by the human tragedy that's occurring in front of us and feeling every second of it as if we were there. Donald was there watching it, experiencing it, but he was obsessed by details that most of us wouldn't care less about because we're so horrified by the emotional impact. Well, he was obsessed by the detail of his own prominence as a, as a consequence. He found the one detail in that whole thing that enhanced him. So as you, you said, this is before he was president, but what are some of the striking instances of emotional misfire once he becomes the president of the United States? The one that struck me the most, uh, I, I mean, this was one that that gathered a lot of attention at the time is when he was throwing the paper towels into the audience so that there was a, a terrible um, natural disaster in 
uh, in, in Puerto Rico and and he went there to uh, help in the aid relief after telling them that it wasn't that big a deal. <laughs> um, and, and then there's video of him throwing paper towels into the audience and, and he was asked about it afterwards and saying that's that's really flippant and callous to these people are have no power, uh, have had their homes destroyed, need these supplies, and you're there like your Oprah distributing prizes. Um, and he never understood what was wrong with that, never. Um, he acknowledged that everybody else thought there was something wrong with that but couldn't for the life of him think what was wrong with that. I think not long after that he was meeting with people who'd survived a, a mass shooting and it was filmed that he had these little notes mm. like, ask questions or show yeah. concern. Show concern. So you say that psychopaths don't feel empathy. They're missing the part of the brain that allows humans to feel empathy. But can they pretend that oh, they're feeling empathy? Absolutely. They can and they do and they're very, very good at it. From about the age of four, remember, they aren't like the rest of us and they know it. Very, very quickly they come to the conclusion that there's something different about the way they think. They don't see it as a weakness. They don't see it as a problem, uh, but they do see it as potentially causing them issues. So I give an example in the book, a completely made up one of a child that falls out of a treehouse and, and their leg is broken because of the actions of a psychopathic uh, child. And, and the child comes up and, and uh, notices the, the bone sticking out of the skin and says, oh, um, oh that's really interesting. Uh, you know, I've, that, <laughs> I've never seen something like that. That's, that's really curious. Rather like the way Donald behaved about the building. You know, this is an interesting fact. Then the child looks around and notices all of the parents gathered around who are utterly distraught at what they're seeing. The child is harmed. The kids are all in tears. And the psychopath is thinking, wow, what is wrong with these people? Uh, and then very quickly realizes, I better start behaving like this or I'm going to be cast out from this group of people. So psychopaths learn very, very quickly. They have to learn to imitate empathy. They have to pretend the difference is that when they do that, it's a manual override. They have to think about it and then do it, whereas we're doing it in sub one second speed. That gap is something we can pick up. Is that something that is something that's true around, say, the charming element, the charming aspect of of these kinds of people as well? Is that something that's deliberately put on and can switch on and off? I mean, yeah. Trump, I guess, could be a good example of that. Absolutely. And and there are many stories of Trump from people who've met him in person um, who say, this is an incredibly charming fellow. This is, you know, you could look at him on television and you could see him doing things like throwing the paper towels or having the cheat notes to remember to be empathetic. And you would say, how could anyone ever vote for this person? But if you meet him in person, according to many, many accounts of people who have, he's extraordinarily charming. Uh, he is very, very good at telling you what you want to hear. And all psychopaths are. They're very good at reading what we want and reflecting it back to us. I think the Washington Post fact-checking department you mentioned listed 30,753 lies that Trump told during his presidency. But those lies varied from the really consequential things like losing the election to things that seemed not to matter really at all. Yeah. Are psychopaths even aware that they're lying? Is it something they're doing deliberately? Uh, yes and no. They're, they're saying things which they know uh, may not be true, but they don't care that they're not true. 
It's we have a problem with lying because as soon as we lie, we know we are risking the trust that others are putting in us. Psychopaths don't believe anyone trusts them because they don't trust anybody else. And so they have absolutely no problem saying whatever gets them through that moment in time. Now, maybe it's true. Maybe it isn't. What does it matter? It's what needs to be said at that moment. Now, the Washington Post was counting him because he's a president. <laughs> and so it's important to fact check these things. But he's not lying any more than any other psychopath does. They lie like we breathe. It, lying is not important to them, whereas to us it's critical. And do they believe their own lies? Well, uh, they believe whatever they need to believe at that moment in time to get them the result they want. We care because trust is critical to us and we default to trust. They know that, so they'll tell us whatever they think we want to hear. So if we imagine how this might play out in our own workplace, imagine that we're not in the White House but but somewhere else, I think you said there's this millisecond where the rest of us can pick up that someone's performing something yeah. rather than it being genuine. Is this an area that we need to trust our guts on more, yeah. our instinct? There, most people, when you ask them about the first time they met a psychopath, um, will say, when I first met that person, they were really incredible. You know, they were perfect for the job. Uh, often you hear this from interviewers, like, I employed this person because they were perfect. They were better than any other candidate by miles. Uh, you know, they said everything I needed to hear. They understood our business. They understood what we were doing. They were so perfect. I didn't check their references. Um, bad idea with a psychopath because every reference is probably made up um, because they don't mind lying uh, and they know that we default to trust. But that instant piece where they are talking to you the first time uh, and giving you the full charm offensive, you may feel uneasy. And that's what people say is there was something off about the person. Just, I, I can't pin it down. There was just something off. Um, you've got to learn to trust that because it's right. That's your mirror neurons telling you what you're hearing is not the same as what we're seeing. So if these kind of behaviours were happening with a, a colleague of mine, not that that would ever happen at the ABC, <laughs> but just imagine uh, that it was. There was someone who at first seemed to be perfect for a role and then were being vicious one-on-one -on -one or spreading lies or, or misrepresenting themselves my instinct would be to go to a manager or to someone higher up the chain, someone in HR. Mm. What's your advice? Don't do that. Um, they have a lot of time, psychopaths, um, because they make decisions instantaneously that wouldn't take the rest of us months um, because we worry about things. We worry about consequences. We worry about getting the decision wrong. Um, we need all the data. Psychopaths aren't troubled by any of that. They can make a decision instantaneously because they know they are always right. When you're infallible, decision-making is easy. That gives you a lot of time. And what they use that time for is to micromanage others and make sure that those above them in the organisation have an entirely positive view of them. So believe me, if you go round a psychopath to their manager or to HR, the ground will already have been prepared. And that person will know before you even get into the meeting that you are the problem, not the psychopath. What could I do instead, David? <laughs> well, it's not easy, okay? The, the, the solution to dealing with a psychopath is often just to get out of there. Um, it's about 
uh, imagine a scenario where, where you walk into a junkyard and, and, and you face a vicious dog guarding the junkyard. Now, the dog is not attacking you, but they're snarling and they're growling at you, and you've got to decide the, how you're going to deal with that. The dog is the psychopath. Now, in what you do with that dog, there's a couple of things you wouldn't do. You wouldn't decide, you know what, the way I'm going to solve this is I'm going to fight the dog. <laughs> But strangely, that's what most of us do when confronted with a psychopath. Or try to pat it, or befriend it. Befriend it. And, you know, oh, you know what, this dog's just not understanding me. The dog's not understanding that I'm a friend of its owner and, and, and I just need to be friends with the dog. So I'll go up and I'll pat him on the head and I'll be his friend. Um, the dog will rip your arm off. And that's what we do with psychopaths. Our instinct in dealing with psychopaths is to try and help them understand our position Try and help them understand how they can work with us to solve this problem. The psychopath doesn't care any more than the dog does. Uh, the solution to that scenario is protect yourself while you back carefully out of that yard. And what does protection look like in a in so a in workplace? A um, it means do not give any information that can be used against you. So do not provide the psychopath with information about your life that can be leveraged against you. Do not tell them that your wife um, works here or there. Do not tell them that your child has an illness. Do not tell them anything about your life, every little bit of it. And they will be charming and lovely to you to prize this information from you. Every little bit of it will be used against you. Um, Do not do that. Do not attack them. Do not fight with them. Do not try to be their friend. Simply respond robotically to the tasks you are asked to perform by them. Record what they say in writing, preferably with a confirmation in writing, and quietly and professionally do your job, no matter how stupid it is, the thing that they've asked you to do. If they're your boss and it's not illegal, you do it. David, this just goes so against the grain of what I would want to do in this scenario. I would want to confront them or I'd want to take it higher. I hate the idea of sort of kowtowing to someone whose behaviour I think is is like this. We we have that instinct. All of us do. And, and it is absolutely the wrong thing to do. Our instinct is there must be justice in this world. There must be justice. If I just take it to his boss, he'll understand how, you know, how I'm right and he's wrong. And that's not the way this works. Uh, I tell story after story about psychopaths who've gone through entire careers, leaving the wreckage of thousands and thousands of unemployed people and destroyed companies behind them in their wake. And there has never been any injustice until right at the end, when an external police force like the Securities Commission or, or the actual police comes in and who don't care about the organisation's reputation or the person involved. They just look at it objectively and they deal with it. That's the only point. But that doesn't help the 100,000 people who lost their jobs before that. So you, you're focusing on your own well-being and your yep. own sort of professional safety rather than the justice, the right or the wrong Absolutely. The, the justice is for the organisation. The organisation has to either be able to solve this problem themselves and, and, and get rid of the psychopath or control them um, or not, but that's not your problem. What if you're the owner of the junkyard with the vicious dog? What if you're the boss rather than the, the colleague of someone like this? What's what's a good attitude or um, approach to take if you think there's someone on your team who's got some of these red flags? How do Always. you even know? Well, it's going to be hard to know because one of the things about psychopaths is that if you're someone that they need something from, 
they will maintain the mask with you. They will be pleasant. They will be fabulous. They will be, and you will struggle to believe that there's anything wrong with that person. And you will readily accept anyone else coming and saying, uh, you know, that there's something wrong with them. You'll say, well, you're the problem. This guy is fabulous. He is incredible because they work very, very hard on maintaining that facade, managing upwards. If you're the boss, first of all, you have to be prepared. You have to design a system that doesn't allow you to be fooled by that. Uh, and and there are some great examples of that, one of them being Costco, where, where the CEO of that organization maintained a policy of always visiting every store in his entire chain every year and talking to the people on the floor and having them know that whatever they told him would be taken seriously. Uh, and that's a way. Having a maintain, maintaining an open door policy that allows people at the lowest parts of your organization to talk to you and be believed um, is a critical method for controlling psychopaths. So it's that trust element again. You can't yeah. just trust the person... Who's directly reporting to you because they're probably the psychopath. And by the way, the stats on this are really interesting, just like prisons. So in prisons, we know that about 30 to 40% of the population in a prison is a psychopath. Um, we also know that a similar percentage of the people in the upper ranks of every organisation are psychopaths. I see. I mean, I just, I want to ask you, it's you give the example of prisons, because I, I guess that one of the dangers, it seems to me, in using this term is that if we take this category of psychopath seriously and say that there are some people who are born this way, it's a neurological defect and there's no changing it and you can't trust them and they're not going to change, there's no motivation. I mean, isn't there a risk that we get a lot of people wrong there? Like a lot of kids who we say, well, there's no hope trying to, you know, rehabilitate you or keep you out of prison, for example, but look, you're, you're a psychopath, we're just going to lock you away. I just worry about the social consequences of, uh, that of some of these ideas. That isn't the solution, by the way. So uh, I talk about uh, one uh, example in the United States called Mendota, which is a juvenile detention facility where they took the psychopaths out of the normal prison population. Uh, by the way, psychopaths use their charm uh, in prison as well. And uh, the average psychopath is going to be back and forth to prison two and a half times in the time that someone who isn't a psychopath convicted of the same crime would be. So they're out three times within the normal term because they can charm a parole board because their charm is a powerful weapon. But they fi have figured out a way in the Mendota example of controlling psychopaths. Normal prisons don't work. You can't threaten a psychopath. You can't punish them. It doesn't work. What they found is that rewarding them does. So they implemented a program of basically frequent flyer points. Every time a psychopath does something correct or some behaviour they like, they rewarded them with points that eventually got them privileges. They found that that was a persistent benefit. After those people were released from prison, many fewer of them ended up back in prison. They found a method of controlling them which involved rewarding the psychopath. Rather like when you're facing the dog, give him a treat to distract him while you get out of there. I guess, though, the question still remains for me is who gets to choose who's a psychopath and not, you know? Who's, who's in charge of that big category on someone? It's not like there's a blood test we can do. No, there isn't. Um, the, the ability to see um, von Economo neurons on MRIs is getting very, very good. MRIs are now getting to the point where you can actually tell whether a person has sufficient density of von Economo neurons or not. The trick is getting your psychopathic boss to stick his head in an MRI machine. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, we've been talking about trust and about empathy. I wonder the effects of you on you of doing this research, of looking into this, of looking at all of these case studies. I mean, do you think of yourself now as a, a less trusting person than you were before you began thinking so deeply about psychopaths? The value to me in doing this is it's really, really hard for us to imagine the way the world looks to a psychopath because we default to trust. We can't help defaulting to trust. We can't help believing that every other human has basically good intentions. We play tit for tat. Our first option is always to trust the other human. Um, And being able to put yourself in that mind space where that isn't the way you feel, where every other human is just there to make your life better. If they deliver a benefit to you, all good. If they don't, throw them away. Being able to think that way and continuously think that way is helpful, particularly when you encounter someone like this. David, you've given me a lot to think about. I'm going to be looking at all my colleagues in a slightly new light. Thank you for being my guest on Conversations. Pleasure, Sarah. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.